this weekend, I realized like this could be an entire sermon series of content in one sermon. So this is going to be one of those like, hang on for dear life. It's going to feel like we're going to go like ludicrous speed. Um, and we are, right? So I just want, I want to warn you, all right? There's, this is going to be a day to take notes. This is going to be a day to write some things down because we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about some of the heart stuff that we find as it relates to our relationship, our care and concern for people that don't know Jesus, right? What, what's that? What, what are we supposed to feel, right? What are we supposed to feel about that? Today, we're going to talk about what do we do about that? How do we begin to lean in and activate our responsibility? So, you're going to want to take notes today, and a real great way to do that is just to have your phones ready so you can grab pictures of the screen, okay? You can go back then later and kind of go and watch this again or think through what you're writing. But I'm just going to tell you, we're going to go really fast. Um, I told him today, it's like every cup of coffee I have shaves about like three and a half minutes off, and I've had like four or five. So um, we're going to go super fast today. But again, it's one of those things we talked about like this kind of message sets like a trilogy, and I was telling Justin earlier today, like, I kind of understand now what J.J. What, what Abrams was going through when he tried to figure out how to land the plane in Rise of Skywalker on Star Wars, right? So it's like, it's tough to try to land the plane in a trilogy because there's lots of content, and he only had 30-some-odd years of, like, Star Wars lore. This is thousands of years of biblical. So really, J.J. Abrams knows what it's like to be me, right, if we can just correct that and trying to land the plane on tying all this stuff together. So, we don't have time um, to do a full recap. And hey, hey, Nano, can you throw the house lights up so if they're taking notes, they can write those things down? That'd be awesome. Thanks, man. We don't have time to do a full recap, but we do have time to do a flyby, okay? So here, here's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. The main question that we are still in the process of unpacking was this really tough gut punch question that we asked really a couple of weeks ago and last week, and that's this. What's your attitude and level of care and concern for people that are trying to go through life without Jesus, right? These would be people that Jesus would call the lost, right? People who are seeking a different way, people who are lost. They're trying to go through life without Jesus. They're trying to go through life in the without God life, right? And that's really kind of what set us on this journey. And Jesus' heart for these people was he said, I came to seek and save those that are lost, and he said, that's my mission. That's why I'm here. I'm after these people. So we get from Jesus what kind of his model of care and concern for people that are lost. And we see that also in what we've been unpacking in Romans. We see Paul's heart for people who are lost as well. So takeaway number one, again, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, take your phone out, grab a picture, okay? Takeaway number one is this, for the people in our lives who are lost. And it doesn't matter if their lostness is rooted in non-belief, which is they don't know that they're lost because they've really never had anyone share anything about Jesus with them. They're doing the best they can without really even knowing about Jesus. We would call them non-believers. Or maybe they're unbelievers, which is I don't think that I'm lost. I really don't need Jesus. I don't need anybody to save me. I don't need that because I can be God in my own life, right? Regardless of that, our hearts should break for the lost, and that heartbreak should lead us to run to them, not away from them, right? The church, we cannot just have holy huddles in this place on Sundays. We can't just have holy huddles in small groups. Like, we've got to begin to step out of the bubble, right, and into the lives of people that don't know Jesus. And so Paul, we see from his example in Romans, he was not about to let the lostness of people around him go. He was heartbroken over the lostness of his own people, and that led him to act on that, right? He shared the gospel. He shared the truth with a group of religious people, they were, they were lost in religion. They were trying to do religion for God instead of being in a relationship with God. They, think, they didn't think they needed to be saved because they thought they could save themselves, right? So Paul, he ran to them. He didn't just go, well, no big deal. They're lost. It's their fault. 
right? That was, not his, that was not his attitude. His heart broke for them, and that led him to write three chapters in Romans directly to them, right? Which leads us to takeaway number two, and that's this. We can't save anybody. It's not up to you and I to save people. What we can do is we can point people who are lost to the truth of who God is and what he's about. And that's exactly what we see Paul do. And that's exactly what we see Jesus do. Jesus pointed people to the truth of his father. Jesus corrected misconceptions. Jesus corrected perceptions. And Paul's doing the same thing. He's pointing to certain aspects of God's character, his integrity, his person, his personality. He's pointing to those things because that's where the truth lives. It's not opinion. It's truth. It's truth based in the character of God. And so here's how we say this at Adventure. We say it like this. It's not our job to save anybody. It's our responsibility to create opportunities for people and Jesus to get in the same room so that they can work things out. You've heard us say that a few times, right? It's not our job to save anybody. It's our, it's our job, it's our responsibility to create opportunities for people and Jesus to get together. That's why in like the why, the vision of our church, it says this, to create opportunities for people to come as they are and become all that God desires them to be. And those opportunities look like Sunday morning. Those opportunities look like D groups. Those opportunities look like trunk or treat. Those, these are opportunities to get people in the same room with Jesus. And us in our own lives, it's, it's opportunities, right, to sit down at lunch or for coffee or in a living room or at your neighbor's house. It's opportunities to get people in the same room with Jesus. So as we learn to respond to the heartbreak that we experience for people in our lives that are lost, it's not about you and I trying to put together the most polished gospel presentation. It's not about you and I trying to come up with the most convincing argument and learning how to debate. That's not what it's about. We can learn from Paul's example that the absolute best thing we can do is point to the truth of who God is and what he's all about. But when we do that, we have to encounter, we have to be ready to encounter this tension, and this is what we talked about last week, this tension that exists between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And here's kind of how we define God's sovereignty. It's this, God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, and he can choose whomever he wants to accomplish those things. Basically, God is in charge, and he can do the things he wants to do because he's God. And he can do things how he wants to do it because he's God. And he can use whoever he wants to do it because he's God. Nobody is disqualified. That's an important thing for us to remember, that God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty ultimately qualifies anybody that he calls and chooses. Right? People in the Bible had a hard time with this. Right? People in the Bible struggled. That's why, that's why the Jews struggled with Jesus because like, there's no way. There's no way the, the, the Savior of humanity is a blue-collar dude from a redneck town right, way up north in Galilee. There's no way. That's not who we're expecting. That's not who we want. That's not who we're looking for. There's no way this could work. But again, God can choose whoever he wants to do, whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, right? That's how it works. You and I, what that means for us is this, that you and I being saved by, by grace through faith has nothing to do with our status or our ability or our capability. It has everything to do with God's sovereignty and his perfect character and integrity. That's what saves, Okay. And this tension, right, the way this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility kind of plays out, historically, it's kind of this either-or mentality. A lot of people will say, well, either God is sovereign or we have responsibility. It's either-or. It can't be both. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And some people, in this kind of assumption, they think that God is this kind of dictator and puppet master. He's just an evil dictator, 
He's just in charge, and he's exercising his authority. He's exercising his authoritarianism on us. He's a dictator. He's a puppet master. And everything in life and everything in the world is already decided, and we have no responsibility. And like we said last week, the difference between, like, a dictator is authority without relationship. That's how you would kind of define a dictatorship. It's authority without a relationship and really without any desire to have a relationship. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want to rule over you, right? That's not what God's about. So we know for a fact that God's not a dictator. Why? Because what he desires most of all is to have a relationship with us. And authority with relationship is really what we call that as a father, a good father, authority with all kinds of love in that relationship, right? So some people assume that God is a dictator and a puppet master, and some people on the other end of that spectrum, they kind of assume that God is a disengaged spectator. That God kind of set all this stuff in motion, and then he kicked back with his popcorn sitting in the stand, he's watching life on earth, he's watching our life, he's watching humanity kind of play out like he's, like he's just a disengaged spectator. And in that kind of mold, when it comes to responsibility, we have to, it's up to us then to kind of create our own meaning and purpose in life. But it's not both, it's either or. But the truth is this, right? This is kind of takeaway number three. In God's sovereign will and desire, right, his will is going to be done, right? God's sovereign will and desire will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? His will is going to be done because he's sovereign. God will work things out and is working things out the way he wants to work things out in his sovereignty. So his will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that will and desire includes you and I being given the responsibility, number one, to answer his call on our lives, to choose him, to trust him, to believe in him. He sends that call out to all humanity, knowing ahead of time that not everybody is going to respond. Some will, some won't. So our first responsibility is this, to say yes to answer God's call on our lives. And then with that, right, what comes next is then it's our responsibility to love God, love people, and make disciples. And one really important thing to realize about God's sovereignty is that it actually simplifies our responsibility. You and I are not responsible for carrying the weight or making, making our salvation or anyone else's salvation happen. We can't do that. Only God can do that. And here's the news. Here's the good news. God has already done that through Jesus. God takes full responsibility for our eternity. Our responsibility is simple. It's this. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to the gospel, right? And then to share that gospel, the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus at work in us, to share that gospel with our lives and with our lips, the way we live and telling our story, sharing our testimonies, pointing people to the truth about who God is. And so today, that's kind of the quick flyby, right? Today, we're going to talk about what this looks like. What does it look like for you and I to share the gospel with our lives and with our lips? How do we respond to the heartbreak that we feel for people who are lost? How do we navigate the, the tension that exists between sovereignty and responsibility? What does it look like for us to do this? And again, what we talked about, I'm going to go super fast, okay? What we talked about, when we talk about, when we talk about the gospel... Right, we, we said that it's, it comes from this Greek word euangelion, which that word means an announcement or a, proc, a proclamation of a new reality. And that's really what the gospel is. When we share the gospel, the story of Jesus, we are proclaiming, we are announcing that a new reality is possible. A new way to live is possible. And it doesn't start when you die, it starts now. There's a new reality, just that there are new opportunities available to us when we choose the gospel. Right, so that's what we proclaim. And so we, we, we ask, well, what is the gospel? Like, how do we share that? Let me do that real quick, all right? 
Number one, God created us to be in a relationship with him. That's the truth. We were designed as humans to reflect him, but also be in a relationship with him. Our sin, missing the mark, looking at God, saying, I don't need you in my life, I can do this better on my own. Our sin separated us from God. Sin cannot be dealt with by just trying to do good things or trying to be good. And then paying the price for sin, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and rose again, right? He resurrected, having broken and removed the power of sin and death forever. Everybody, everybody who trusts in Jesus alone, through faith alone, receives eternal life, the with God life. And the with God life with Jesus, it, starts, it works through Jesus and it starts now and it lasts forever. Now, you look at this, does anybody see like the little hidden thing in this? Maybe not yet, how about now? Yeah, there you go. I didn't come up with that, okay? I'm going to take no credit for that. Greg Steer and his crew at Dare to Share Ministries came up with this, but it's a great way to remember the gospel, and it actually spells out gospel when you think about it. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is. But for us to become people that run to the lost and not away from the lost, we need to know both what the gospel is and what the gospel does, right? So if you've got your Bibles in front of you or Bible app, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30, okay? Trying to go fast, trying to go fast. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Paul asks this question, what should we say then? In light of everything that we've talked about, in light of everything that we've talked about in Romans 9 and really all the chapters leading up to this, what shall we say then, right? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. That's what he's saying. That's the truth. The Gentiles, Gentile people were anybody that wasn't Jewish, right? Anybody that wasn't from Israel. And so he says, listen, the, the Gentiles, they, they didn't pursue righteousness through the law in the same way that the Jews did, but yet they've received righteousness by faith. That's what we're saying. He says, but, he goes on to say, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. They pursued righteousness, but they didn't get there. They pursued righteousness through works through by doing religion for God instead of being in a relationship with him, they didn't achieve their goal. Why not, he says? Well, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, he says, see, I lay, a, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Talking about Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter 10. At the beginning of chapter 10, he says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire... And my prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. He says, I can testify about them that they are, they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It's not based on understanding. He says, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ, he says, is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. All right, so when we ask this question about what, like, we know what the gospel is, what does the gospel do? This is the first thing the gospel does. The gospel confronts and convicts. What does the gospel do? It confronts and convicts. Here's what it convicts, all right? The gospel confronts and convicts our worldview, and when I talk about worldview, I'm talking about the lens that we use to make sense of the world, okay? So if you're taking notes, you may want to write that down. What's my worldview? The worldview is the lens that I use to kind of make sense of the world around me, to make sense of our lives. And really also, the, our worldview, and I think we find this now 
more than ever with social media and politics and all that kind of stuff, our worldview not only kind of tries to make sense of, of our own lives and the world around us, but we also oftentimes use it to try to make sense of other people's lives, right? In light of my worldview, you're wrong, right? In light of my worldview, we're on the same team, Th- like those kinds of things. So our worldview isn't just applied to us. It also oftentimes gets applied to others. Tim Chaddock, here's what he says about it. He defines worldviews like this. Our worldviews are ideas that we give authority in our lives. They end up causing us to stand for one thing or another. And I think that's a great way of kind of defining what a worldview is. And the gospel confronts this. The gospel, what the gospel does when we read the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, what the gospel does is it confronts the ideas and the ways of life that we give authority. Because here's the deal. We, we may give certain ideas authority in our life. We give certain ideas and ideals authority. We allow those things to shape us based on what we think, my opinion. Here's what I think. But the gospel, here's the difference. Our ideas are rooted in our authority, but the gospel is rooted in the authority. I mean, think about this for a second. When you hear or when you read the gospel, whether you believe in it or not, anytime we, we kind of dive into scripture, we talk about Jesus, anytime we encounter Jesus, we bump into Jesus, it causes us to kind of think about life in light of what we're hearing. When I talk about Jesus, when I read Jesus, when I read about Jesus, when I study the Bible, it causes me to think about my life in light of what I'm reading, in light of what I'm hearing. Like, I ask these questions, like, what, what am I living by? What standard, what worldview am I living by? Like, who or what am I giving authority in my life? Like, what am I allowing to, to speak into my, what, am I, what idea or what person Am I allowing me to kind of inform the way I think about the world? What am I living by? Do those things, right, do the things that I give authority or the people that I give authority, do they care about me? Do they love me or do they just want to take something, something from me? Well, how's that work? Ask questions like this. Who or what am I allowing to steer and direct my life? When we read the gospel, when we read Jesus, it confronts who or what we chase after with our lives. In light of the truth of the gospel, we ask these questions like, am I living in a way? This is kind of what Paul talks about. Am I living in a way that I'm destined to fall flat on my face, stumbling over, right, this stone, right, the cornerstone, Jesus, and I fall on my face not because of Jesus, but because I've been chasing after idols that claim to be God and are not. Am I going to fall flat on my face? Or will I find myself standing with Jesus and Jesus standing with me? Because it's a two-way street. We stand with him, he stands with us. Now, here's what I know. The vast majority of us are non-confrontational people, right? Can I get an amen? There you go. Thank you, right? You all just outed yourselves. Um, so the, the second that we hear, like, the gospel, like, confronts and convicts, we're like, nope, I'm out. Like, I know we're talking about our responsibility to share the gospel, but I don't really want to confront, and I don't really want to convict, right? That's one of the main objections. That's one of the main objections when it comes to sharing the gospel. And I've heard this as a pastor for years. I mean, kind of the excuses that we hear, or, or rather the objections that we hear. And I, when I say excuses, I don't mean that to be harsh, okay? It's a real objection. There's fear in us when it comes to kind of sharing the gospel with people. And I hear things like this, like, I mean, Brad, this, and this is real, and there's, there's legitimacy to this. Like, Brad, who am I? to tell somebody else how to live their lives. 
Who am I? Who am I to tell somebody else what it looks like to, to live their lives, right? And, and I hear this a lot too. A big knock on Christians is, you know, from those outside the church and those who are lost is that we think we're better than everyone. And I don't want to play into that. I don't want to play into that stereotype. I don't want to play into that. So I'm just, I'm just not. And here's what I would say. If those are kind of your objections, right? I, I, who am I to tell anybody how to live their life? And like, I don't want to play into this. I don't want to add to the stereotype of Christians, you know, people thinking that Christians are superior, that we're better than everybody else. I don't want to add to that. Here's what I would say. You're right. Those are great objections. Like in pop culture right now, the word evangelical is kind of like a bad word. You know, it comes with, it's loaded. It comes with all kinds of, of context and pretense. And it's a shame. I'll be honest with you. It's a shame. It's a shame that something that's meant to kind of care and bear the title of being people who bring good news, because that's what that means to be an evangelical, is you are someone who brings good news. It's a shame to me that that has more now to do, has less to do with the gospel and more now to do with social, cultural, and political stuff. And I use stuff instead of something else, right? Like, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Bad Christians sometimes happen to good people. It happens. It's because some people want to weaponize the gospel and go into confrontation like, you know, like, like in, that, in that movie, right, Al Pacino, like, say hello to my little friend like, with the gospel. That's kind of how they want to, they want to mow people down with the gospel, whether it's related to the pandemic or politics or anything in between. To them, to some people, the gospel is a grenade to pull the pin and then lob into confrontations. And for some Christians, for some believers, conviction only works when it's scorched earth policy. Conviction only works if you are in a puddle on the floor. And that's not how it works. Because when we look at Paul, when we look at the way that Paul, and even Jesus, right? We look at the way Jesus, we look at the way Paul, the way that they use the gospel to confront, to confront and convict, we see something entirely different. They don't mow people down with the gospel. They don't lob grenades into people's lives. They don't walk away with someone in shambles and go, I won. That's not how it works. For Paul, it plays out like this, okay? And we're going to spend most of our time in this kind of bucket today, what it looks like to confirm. Because this for us, I think, is the biggest obstacle and the biggest objection when it comes to sharing the gospel with our lives and with our lips, okay? So we're going to spend most of our time talking about what the gospel does when it confronts and convicts. And we've got to kind of wrap our arms around a new way to do this. Because if we can do that, then we become gospel-advancing people, right? So the first thing we see, the first difference that we see when it comes to the way that Jesus, when it comes to the way that Paul used the gospel to confront and convict is that it's rooted, it comes from, it comes from affection, it doesn't come from a desire to do harm. It doesn't come from a desire to, to hurt. It doesn't come from a desire to be right or to prove somebody else wrong. It's truth and love. And it is like a tidal wave of both. Like Paul, when he looks at these people, he says, do I have some hard truth? Yes. Is it going to rock your world? Yes. But I'm not here to throw stones at you because I love you. If you read back in Romans, Romans 10, what we just read is his, he says, my heart's desire is for you to be saved. And at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 9, we started unpacking a few weeks ago, Paul says that my heart is in unceasing anguish. Why? Because these people are lost. Paul loved lost people. Jesus loved lost people. 
Here's why this matters. When you and I share the gospel and we lead with love in confrontation, it prevents people from becoming projects. Take a picture of that. It prevents people from becoming projects. That's what it does. When we root gospel conversations and gospel confrontation and gospel conviction, when we root that in love, when it's based in love, it prevents people from becoming projects. When we don't, if we don't lead with love, then confrontation and conviction will cause people to become objects to fix instead of people to be deeply cared for. That's when, if, if you want to know when the gospel gets weaponized, there. It's when someone is not a someone, they are a something to fix. They're an object, not a person. And so just like I can simplify it here, just really simply, the gospel is a remedy, not a wrecking ball. That's the truth. The gospel is a remedy, not a wrecking ball. One author I read this week says this, for those of us that maybe find ourselves in those places, delivering a message, delivering this message, the gospel message, without concern for the hearer is a primary indicator that your heart has grown hard towards a person that God loves. That's not, that's not a, I don't want that disconnect between me and God. God, I hate this person. I love him. Who do you think is going to win that? Not me, okay? So here's the thing. It's in love that we share the gospel, and it's through love that the gospel truly confronts and convicts. And when it comes from this place of deep care and concern, it eliminates superiority. Like that, arg- that, that argument and that objection, well, I don't want to be superior. I don't want to come off as superior. When we, when we share the gospel, when we share truth and love together, it puts us in a place of humility. Why? Because we got to confront our own junk first. I'm not better than you. I'm just like you. I'm struggling to figure out how to make ends meet. I'm struggling to f- how to figure out how to do life. I'm just like you. I have struggles in my life that are just like yours. I know what it feels like in my life, and someone loved me enough to tell me the truth, and I love you enough to tell you the truth. I'm not coming at you from a place of up here. I'm coming at you from a place of me too. I get it. So the second thing we see in this, though, is that gospel confrontation and conviction, it, it's, it's rooted in affection, but it's also covered in intercessory prayer. What is that? What does that mean? Paul says, my heart's desire and my prayer is that my people would be saved. See, here's the the deal, church. We cannot be effective in sharing the gospel without entering into intercessory prayer. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what intercessory prayer looks like. You and I, we cannot intercede on behalf of somebody else from a safe distance. You can't. And I get a lot of times what we do when, when maybe one of our friends... Or someone in the church, or maybe some, maybe a neighbor comes and says, listen, my life's going through like a really hard time right now, and, and this is kind of what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. My kids, here's what my kids are struggling with. And a real easy way to get out of those things, hey, I, I'll, I'll pray for you. And it's like the eject button. Like, let's just, just own it. We do that. Like, oh, man, that's, that is so bad. I'm so sorry to hear that. I will pray for you. And then we hop in the car and we head around to do our errands or go home or whatever it is, and, and we don't. Right? It's just, it's, prayer becomes an easy way to escape, whereas intercessory prayer cannot happen from a safe distance, and it's a way to engage. Right? You have to put yourself in the same mess that somebody else is in when we begin to intercede and pray on their behalf. And some people, it means that we have to do our best to imagine what they're going through. But it means we take the time to do that. To intercede means, and it is, it's like I'm asking Jesus to go, hey, would you, give me, would you give me their perspective? 
Jesus, I may not understand anything about what this person is going through in their life right now, but would you give me their perspective? It's praying for them. It's interceding on their behalf from a place of going, look, I'm trying to see things from where you're at. For some, for some of us, it means literally going to where they are. Like, I'm going to step into your living room. And you may not be able to pray in this moment because your life has blown up and fallen apart. But you know what? I will pray for you. And I will put my hand around you. I will put my arms around you. We will sit here and we will pray together. I'm not afraid of your mess, but I'm going to bring prayer into that mess. And when we do that, when we intercede, we listen to them, we learn from them, and we pray for them, not from a safe distance, but standing in the same mess that they're in. It's not an eject button, it's a way to engage. Here's what I want us to kind of remember and write down or take a picture of. When we cover gospel confrontation and conviction and intercessory prayer, what we recognize is this, that the power and presence of God is 100% necessary in that moment and not our own. Like we prayed at the beginning of this, Jesus, we invite you into what is going on in our lives. Sometimes people in our life can't do that. Sometimes people in our life don't know how to do that because they don't know Jesus. But it's an opportunity for us to confront and convict, to allow the gospel to confront and convict by stepping into that mess and inviting Jesus into that space because we know Jesus doesn't run from messy people. So the gospel, gospel confrontation, it's covered in intercessory prayer. Next, gospel confrontation and conviction, it comes from a place of understanding. These two kind of go together. They're kind of cousins. If you look back in those verses that we just read, kind of the beginning of, end of 9, beginning of 10, you can see Paul, he, he knew these people, right? He knew who the Jews were. He said, look, I can testify. I can testify about who they are. He, he knew them. Why? How did he know them? Well, well number one, he grew up that way. He grew up that way. He spent time with them, right? He listened to them. Paul spent time with people, listening to people, instead of just talking at people, right? We talk about this a lot. You have to care about someone enough to understand them. And people need to know that you care about them. Like we say at Adventure, one of our core values, like kind of the definition is this, right? That, that people have to know that you care before they care about what you know. That's why we bring hope. We bring hope to everybody. Why? So they know that we care. Hopefully, knowing that we care leads us to an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So we have to seek to understand. Gospel confrontation and conviction, it, it, is, it comes from a place of understanding. I'm not just talking at you. I'm listening to you. Next, gospel confrontation and conviction, they're willing to do the work of explanation. Right? It's not a gospel drive-by. We don't get that from Jesus. We don't get that from Paul. It's like they didn't do this like, hey, you're a sinner. You're going to hell, but Jesus can save you. Like it's like try to keep up, you know. It's not that. That's not the way they do things. Like explanation invests time. And here's the thing about time. Time is the only unredeemable commodity. You can't, you can't, you can spend time, but you can't really get it back. So when you invest, when you and I invest our time into people, like, it's a big investment. So sitting down, it means this. It means that we answer questions. Explanation means that we answer questions. We answer questions. Maybe somebody texts us late at night saying, hey, miss, I've, been, I've been reading this Bible thing, and i got some questions. Can we, can we talk about this? Yeah, let's talk about it. Sometimes we have to answer the same question ten different times. No matter how long it takes, what explanation means for us is this, that we patiently and intentionally help someone get to know God. Just like we would 
patiently and intentionally help someone get to know a friend of ours. Like when you have two friends, when you have two friends that maybe don't know each other, what do you do? You spend time with them and say, hey, listen, I need you to meet my friend. Let me tell you about my friend. And you take the time and you patiently and you intentionally share with each other about them. And then when they meet, it's like, yeah, man, I've heard a lot about you. I've heard a lot about you. Brad talks about you all the time. What if it was like that with God? It's like you, t- you spend time to invest intentionally to explain, patiently explain. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about who he is in my life. So when it comes time to introducing your friend to him, your friend's like, hey, I've heard a lot about you. And God's going, I've heard a lot about you too. It's a cool moment. And the last thing when it comes to confrontation and conviction is this. They always proclaim Jesus. Most important. It always proclaims Jesus. Jesus, church, is the solution. Bottom line. Jesus is the solution. And because Paul genuinely loves the people that he's talking to because he has interceded and prayed for them, not from a safe distance, but up close, because he sought to understand and know them, because he's taken the time to write three chapters and multiple letters about this gospel thing without getting annoyed or being impatient. When he proclaims Jesus as the solution, it confronts and convicts everything about their worldview. Paul steps on everybody's toes. But... Not only can they hear it, but they can understand it, and they care about it. Why? Because they are heard and understood and cared for. That's why. So number one, the gospel confronts and it convicts, but it's different. It's different. Confrontation and conviction should not be things that we run away from whether it happens in our own lives or we have the opportunity through the gospel to allow Jesus, to allow the Spirit to to confront their worldview, to love them enough to share this with them, to explain it to them, to pray for them, to get them and Jesus in the same room and when, when they look at each other, it's like, Jesus, I've heard a lot about you and Jesus is going, me too, heard a lot about you. That's what it looks like. We always proclaim Jesus. Pick it up in Romans 10, verse five. Paul says this, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? It's kind of Paul's little side notes, right? That is to bring Christ down, like to go get him. Like who's going to go up to heaven and get Jesus? And don't, don't say this, who will descend to the deep? That is to go and bring Christ up from the dead. Like, all right, who's going to go up to heaven and get Jesus? Who's going to go down and rescue Jesus from the dead? Who's going to do that? But it says this, he says, the, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like we talked about last week, no one who seeks and desires God's mercy and grace will be denied that. Everybody who seeks him, everyone who declares with their mouth and believes with their heart will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and blessedly riches all who call on him. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You make sure that we get that. So number one was the gospel confronts and convicts, right? But number two, what the gospel does is the gospel converts. 
Here's what this means, right? After Paul, going through the gospel, after he kind of turns their world upside down, the next thing that Paul does is he leverages the gospel to show how it can shift and change our lives. And that's the response. That's the response to conviction. Don't go back to the old way. Step into something new, right? And when we say convert, here's what we mean, or conversion. We're talking about shifting and changing the direction of our lives, right? And that there's a big fancy church word for this. Jesus' message was repent and believe. That's what we talk about. The gospel leads us to this place where we repent, which literally means to change direction, to turn away from something in order to, to turn towards something new, right? And in this case, we turn away from the old kingdom, the me kingdom that's rooted in us. We let go of the without God life. Why? So that we can turn to the new kingdom that's rooted in Jesus, his kingdom, the with God life. Paul says, you have to shift directions. You can't go through life trying to earn your righteousness. You're never going to be good enough or smart enough or perfect enough. And he goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 30, right? That's where this comes from. He says, if, if you want to try to earn righteousness through the law, you better be perfect. You better not ever mess up. And you can try that, but you inevitably will fail when it comes to living life this way. Or you can shift directions and receive righteousness through faith in Jesus. See, the law says that we need to try to be Jesus in order to be saved. But faith says, I don't have to be Jesus. I need to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's a change. That's a change in direction. Right? He came from heaven. Right? Jesus came from heaven and is now back in heaven. Right, And he's advocating for us. Jesus descended into the depths and came back right, through the power of his father right, to break the power of sin and death forever. I don't have to go up into heaven and go, hey, Jesus, you need to get down there. I don't have the power to go down into death and go, hey, Jesus, you need to get back up here. I don't have that. Jesus did that. Jesus did what I couldn't do to offer me something that I don't deserve. And that applies for all of us. Righteousness isn't earned by our works. It's freely accessible through faith in Jesus. And like Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul says, it's, it is, it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And we've talked about this word justified, just as if I Right? That's how we have to think about it. If we believe in our heart, it is just as if all of that sin and all of that past, it's been dealt with, it's been paid for. It doesn't mean that we don't still carry the scars from some of our choices. It just means they don't condemn us. And there's no shame. It's, it's not, it, for me, being justified, it is just as if I'm now like Jesus. That's what it means. It's with your heart that you believe and you're justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's a major change in direction. When I declare that Jesus is Lord, it means that I'm also declaring that I am not. You get that? Like the moment that we declare that Jesus is Lord, we also at the same time declare that I'm not. He's in charge. I'm not in charge. This confession, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, it, it, it declares Jesus' identity and authority in our lives. He's my savior, he's my Lord. And here's the truth, church, he has to be both. He has to be both. You can't make Jesus your savior and not your Lord. That's turning Jesus into a vending machine that you just wanna get cool stuff from. 
That's like make me feel good Jesus. That's kind of back pocket Jesus. I want Jesus, I want you to save me, but I want you to go where I want to go. I want you to do what I want to do. So you can't make Jesus your Savior and also not make him your Lord, but you also can't make Jesus your Lord and not also make him your Savior. Trying to do that is religion, religiosity, and self-righteousness. Jesus, I, I, you're Lord, but I can save me. I don't need you to save me. He is both our Lord and our Savior. When we confess and proclaim his identity and his authority in that action with our hearts and with our mouths, it represents our conversion, right? This total shift in direction, both on the inside in our hearts and on the outside because we don't keep it a secret. And the result of faith in Jesus, instead of trying to be Jesus, is salvation. He says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, will be made right with God, or justified, right? There's no condemnation, there's no shame. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, the power and presence of God. So the gospel, we know this, confronts and convicts but the gospel also converts. Our, our whole nature is changed. Right? For those of us who believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. You and I are the place where heaven and earth meet. Everything about us changes. Jesus changes everything, right? We say that a lot. So the last thing is this. The gospel commissions. The gospel confronts and convicts. It, con it, convert, it converts and then it commissions, right? Here's what it says in verse 14 and 15. It says this, Paul asked this question. In light of everything that we read, knowing all these different takeaways, knowing that, that, that it's heartbreak that leads us to people that are lost, not away from them, knowing that we have responsibility in light of God's sovereignty, right, to, to, to say yes to Jesus, to share the gospel with our lives and with our lips, and now we know what the gospel does. In light of all of this, we know that the gospel is what convicts and confronts. We know the gospel is ultimately what converts and what changes. So the last thing Paul says in verses 14 and 15 is this. In light of all of that, how can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can anyone preach if they're not sent? It says, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So Paul kind of shifts his audience in these last couple of verses. He's not necessarily talking to people that are lost anymore. He's talking to the people that are saved. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church, and he asks this question, how can people that don't believe in Jesus, how can they call on him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear unless somebody will sit down with the gospel and take the time and the patience and the effort and the energy to share it with him? How, how can anybody do that unless they are sent? He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And you're like, well, I don't know if I'm sent. You are. See, Jesus, he, he, this great commission was for all of us, not just for some of us, but for all of us to go into all nations and make disciples, to help them know, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them what it looks like to obey, to follow, to make Jesus Lord and Savior. That's for all of us. I looked up the, def the definition of the word commission. It's this. It's a group of people officially charged with a particular function. This is our purpose. 
we have a lot of different callings, and we have a lot of different purposes in our lives. We have purposes to work at our jobs and pay bills and care for our families and make ends meet. We have purposes. There's purposes. Those purposes are great, but not as great as this one. And here's the cool thing. This purpose that Jesus gives us, the great commission that Jesus gives us, can coexist with all of the other purposes in your life. In fact, this purpose that Jesus gives us, when we put it at the top, every single purpose comes underneath that, and every single bit of this gospel kind of begins to, to, to kind of flow down into all of these other purposes. So it's not just that I'm going to work and punching a clock and working nine to five, right? I go to work, why? Because it's a mission field. Yeah, I'm getting a paycheck and I make ends meet and I, and I, I pay bills and I care for my family with this, but my office, my, my, my job site, my school, it's, it's a mission field. My neighborhood, my living room is a mission field. This purpose, this purpose wraps itself around all of the other purposes in our lives. And the other thing I like about commission is if you look at the word, it's co-mission. Like it's ours together. It's a co-mission. God doesn't just send us to the wolves, right? He goes with us. Jesus says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's the end of the Great Commission. I will be with you always, the whole of every moment, to the very end of the age. This mission is our mission together with the Father. We know the Father's heart and will and desire is to see people saved. This mission is ours together with the Son who goes with us and shows us the way. This mission is ours together with the Spirit that fuels and empowers and equips us. So today, you've got these cards in your seats, and there's some pins around you. We didn't have, we ran out of pins somewhere over here. So share. Back on the back wall, as you walk into church, you see this pray, care, share board, right? And there's these ping pong balls next to it. These kind of coordinate with that. So here's my challenge to you. If you want to do this today, I would love for you to do this today. If you want to take this home and maybe talk about it as a family, to do that. But in that bottom section where it says pray, think of three people that you can be interceding for right now, that you can be praying for. And maybe it'd be really awkward or weird to say, hey, I'm coming over to your house to pray for you, but in your own living room or your own car or your own cubicle or your own office, you can picture them, you can can ask Jesus to give you their perspective and you can begin to pray for them. Who are three people that you can start interceding for? And maybe for some of us it is. I just need to punch awkward and just go over to their house and say, hey, I'm coming over to pray for you today. Or maybe for that person that, that, that works next to us, has the office next to us, it's, hey, ma'am, don't know what's going on in your life, but just want to let you know I prayed for you today. Who are people we can begin to pray for? Names. But names. The next one is the care piece. Like we talk about, like the gospel explains, it seeks to understand cares for people so that they know that we care. Who are some people in your life, who are two people right now in your life that you can go out of your way to care for? I love that that hospitality puts flesh and blood on the gospel, puts flesh and bone on the gospel. Like, I love that, just caring for people. It makes the gospel seem more real, makes the gospel seem more tangible. Who are two people you can care for right now? You can provide for, you can cook dinner with, you can take out for lunch or buy their coffee. You can take their kids to school, clean up their yard. Who are people that you can care for? And it's not a bait and switch. It's not, hey, I'm caring for you, so ha-ha, here comes the gospel. It's not that. I'm caring for you. I love you like this because this is the way that Jesus loves you. If you ever want to talk about him, let me know. And then the last one is share. 
knowing now what the gospel is and what the gospel does and the way we approach this with people that are lost in our life, who's one person that you can commit in the next month, we'll say, to sitting down and saying, listen, I need to tell you what I believe in. I need to tell you about Jesus who changed my whole life because I think he can change yours too. So back in the back today, if you want to do this before you leave, what I would ask is, based on the names you write on your paper, pick up those colored golf balls and just write initials on those, on those ping pong balls and drop them in. Because the cool part is, one of these, we want to fill that up. We want to fill that up with people that we know in this church are being prayed for. We know in this church are being cared for. We know in this church are, are, are being, the gospel is being shared. We can pray as we walk past that, that deal back there. We see those initials, and we even can stop in a second and say, Jesus, I want to pray for every single one of them. I want to pray for every yellow golf ball in this thing that, that says that someone is going to be hearing the gospel in the next month. I pray for that. God, I pray for these orange golf, these orange ping pong balls in here that these are people who are being cared for. I pray that they receive that. God, I pray for these people on the white ping pong balls who are being prayed for. Lord, I pray that you would begin to work in their life. We can do that. Church, part of making disciples means we have to advance the gospel. It's not our job to save people. It's our job to get Jesus and people in the same room. And we do that. We do that when we share the gospel. So that's my challenge for you today. Take some time in this next song. Think about some names. Write them down. Take these home. Put them on the fridge so you see them. Put them on your mirror so you see them. Put them on, like tuck them in your car, wherever wherever you can put them where you're reminded to do this. Don't just let this be another Sunday where it's like, yeah, we filled out some circles on a thing. I can't quite remember what they're for. Like this is, an, this is a great opportunity to act on what we see presented to us in the truth of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Jesus, today was kind of a whirlwind. But Jesus, today I pray that as a church we leave renewed and ready to share with the people around us, to share with those who need to hear the gospel, Lord, to, to invest our time, effort, and energy to care for people who need to be cared for, Lord, to begin to pray for people in our lives that need you. Jesus, we thank you that you never give up on us. Jesus, we thank you that you never quit. Jesus, we love you, and we pray all this in your name.